find your seats this morning and turn to Exodus chapter 22. We'll be in Exodus, Exodus 22. We'll be starting in verse 16, if you would um, read along with me. If you could stand for the reading of God's word this morning, please. And starting in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrificed to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them, if you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall, do, do, or you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his coat for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your son shall be, you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beast in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, our Lord, our Father, we once again come to you, Lord, in a, in a passage that for us, Lord, for many is it's difficult to, to understand, Lord, as we work our way through the law, Lord. For, for many of us, Lord, this is unfamiliar territory in Scripture, Lord. And I would pray, Lord, this morning that you would just fill our hearts with your Spirit, Lord, that, that the Spirit would give us understanding, Lord, of, of what these passages not only teach, Lord, to the Israelites, the laws given to the Israelites, Lord, but, but the principles behind these laws, Lord, that apply to us today, Lord, and, and, and more than any of that, Lord, I pray that we see your character this morning, your holy, loving, honorable character, Lord, that the Israelites were to worship in the conduct of their living, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would leave this morning, Lord, understanding what it means that you are holy and how we are to live in light of that. So God, I pray that you're with us. I pray that I would speak nothing that would come from my own thoughts, Lord, but only from your word. In your son's name, amen. I 
hope it's obvious that today we're going to be continuing our walk through what theologians call the Book of the Covenant. Again, the Book of the Covenant is just chapters 21 through 23 in Exodus. It's mostly civil laws, laws that were applied to Israel in the Old Testament that were to govern Israel as a nation. Today we come to a portion that seems like, if you've read through this already or if you just heard it for the first time, it seems like a bunch of kind of disconnected laws, almost laws that that were thrown together at towards the end of the this book of the covenant, thrown together to cover anything that was just missed in the earlier part uh, of this portion of laws. But as I've read and studied this portion this week over and over again, I've noticed that th- there's really an organization in this portion of scripture. There's three groups of laws, and they all deal with God's character. Right? The first group of laws is God deals with God's holiness. The the second group deals with God's love and And finally, the third grouping of laws deals with God's honor. So today I have really three points or three parts of this passage. God is holy, God is love, and God is to be honored. So that's going to be our three points of the sermon this morning. God is holy, God is love, God is to be honored. And I'm going to end today with one application point that we're going to spend some time in, and it's a deep application point that I just think is really uh, relevant for us today, the church today. So, So we'll end there. But let's just get right into the sermon this morning, starting with God is holy. God is holy. And because he is holy, God's people are to be holy. We are to image God, God's people, the Israelites in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament. We are to image God. We are to reflect his holy nature. In fact, 1 Peter 1.16 says this, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Again, God's people are to be holy. Therefore, they are not to tolerate unholy behavior. In other words, there is to be a separation. I want you to key on that word. Separation. We're going to come back to that word over and over and over again. There is to be a separation between God's people and unholy behavior. A separation, again, between holiness and unholiness. And there's four different behaviors talked about in this passage this morning where there's to be a separation between God's people and, and these unholy behaviors. The first one is in verse 16, and it's premarital sex. Look what it says in verse 16. If a man, verse 16, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Now, again, this is pretty simple. It's straightforward. It's different cultural context. So there's some things, a bride price, uh, uh, the father being so involved in this interaction. But if a man seduces a virgin, pretty simple, right? An unmarried woman, that's what a virgin was considered, right? An unmarried woman and has a sexual relationship with her, he is to pay the bride price and marry her. But, look at verse 17, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, right, the the reason being probably because this is not a good guy, the father recognizes it, like, this is protection of his daughter, saying, I refuse that, that you marry this guy. He, this is the seducer, he shall pay money equal to the pride price, or bride price for virgins. Again, this is pretty straightforward. Right? 
Obviously, this is an application of the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And we've learned as we've gone through the Ten Commandments that the seventh commandment covers, covers way more than unfaithfulness in marriage, just unfaithfulness in marriage. It, it covers premarital sex as it's being applied here to the Israelites. Now, there's a couple of observations I want to make on this law that I think are important. The first one is this. This is not talking about rape. This is not talking about rape. There's a, a lot of commentaries I read, the, the minority, not the majority, that just assume this is talking about rape. But, but the penalty for rape is clear in Scripture in the Old Testament, and that was death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 25, just clearly says that, that the penalty of rape is death. So that's not what's being talked about here, because the, the penalties, right, the consequences are dramatically different. In fact, the Hebrew word that's translated seduces is used 27 times in the Old Testament, so that gives us a good understanding of what this word means. It's translated different ways. It's translated deceived, enticed, allured, persuaded, flattered. It's never translated in the context force. Instead, it has a connotation of someone who is gullible being taken advantage of by someone who is persuasive or deceitful. Now, I want to be clear, I don't think this is saying that girls are gullible, right, in this situation. Instead, it implies that the man, the guy, they're, they're typically the pursuer in physical sexual relationships, especially outside of marriage. Therefore, this law was to discourage men from seeking the pleasure of sex without the responsibilities of marriage. Now, What's interesting, and, and why I think a lot of commentaries assume this is talking about rape, and as I read through this, I, I hope some of you noticed this. What's interesting is that verses 16 and 17 really only address the man in the situation. He's the seducer. He is to pay the father. Therefore, because the man is the only one addressed, many assume this, this has to be a, a situation where the, it was forced, it was rape. But I don't think that's a good interpretation. It's not that the young lady isn't in sin or is just purely a victim in this circumstance. Instead, it's that the man has a higher level of responsibility in this sin. The man was made by God to be the provider, the protector, the leader, not a seducer. Man's role and responsibility, in other words, was to protect women not take advantage of women. Therefore, even though a young lady might be just as guilty as the man in this situation, in this particular sin, it was the man who bears the brunt of the responsibilities, right? He failed to lead, protect, and to provide. Therefore, he was commanded to do the right thing, either marry her or at least provide the bride price that would have been given to a young lady in marriage. Now, I think it's important, and there's a reason I'm spending so much time on this. I, I, I think it's important because we see a similar principle, I believe, in the Garden of Eden. Right? Adam was given the responsibility as the man to lead, to protect, to shepherd Eve. Therefore, even though Eve was the first to grab the forbidden fruit, who gets blamed for the sin? Adam. In fact, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, implying Adam. In fact, I, I don't want to take this too far because I don't know what I think about this, but I heard a theologian that I trust, an Old Testament expert, actually say the sin started by, by Adam allowing the serpent to come into the garden in the first place. 
that he should have protected the garden, protected his wife from letting this serpent come in in the first place. I don't know what I think about that, but, but there is a concept here that man has a role and a woman has a role. And this is important because part of God's holiness that we see in this passage is really seen not just in sexual impurity, but it's also seen that sex has its proper place in marriage. Therefore, there is a distinction, a separation. Again, that word's important, a separation, a distinction in our passage with sex outside of marriage being impure, separated and distinct from sex within marriage being good, being pure. There's a distinction, a separation. In fact, many of you have probably heard this. I remember Pastor Andy saying this when I was growing up, that that. There's a good analogy with fire, right? Fire in a fireplace is really good. But you put the fire anywhere else in the house, that's not good. (laughs) There's a distinction. But that's not the only place that we see a distinction or we see God's holiness displayed in this law. Again, I spent some time on this because I I think we we see a distinction in this portion of law between men and women. Male and female. Having different roles and responsibilities. And according to scripture, that is good, that is holy. Men and women, in their proper roles, is good, is holy. Holiness can be defined as this. I'm going to give you a very simple definition of holiness, and I've been thinking about this all week, and we're going to spend some time on it at the end of the sermon this morning. Holiness can be defined as this. Things put in their proper place. Things put in their proper place. Now, holiness is much more than that, but it's not less than that. In fact, it's a starting place of understanding what holiness is. Things put in their proper place. Sex in marriage is its proper place. Therefore, good. The roles between men and women, male and female, right? Good, proper, I would even say holy. Again, holiness can be defined as things put in their proper place. And this idea keeps going in our passage this morning. So look at verse 18. And verse 18 says this, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Sorceress, witchcraft. A sorceress is someone who, who practices magic or spells. Right? Someone trying to manipulate the spirits. And we know that there is a spiritual reality most likely manipulating demons. Right? Trying to at least to accomplish something. Right? This was outlawed in Israel. God's people were, were not to be associated with the pagan practices of mediums, psychics, wizards, witchcraft. There is to be, again, a distinction, a separation, right? a separation between paganism and God's people. Again, things put in their proper place is holy. God's people were to be set apart, put in their proper place from paganism. We see this again in the next verse. Look at verse eight, 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Again, there is a distinction, a a separation, a separation between humans and animals. When we don't separate humans and animals in their proper place, it's unholy. Verse 19 is really an extreme example of this. In fact, it's something that's almost embarrassing to talk about. It goes against God's creative order. But this is not just sexual perversion. I want to be clear on this. It's also, so it has to do with worship. 
There's a distinction being made here between pagan worship and godly worship, between the world and God's people. There's a great possibility that this law was warning against mixing perverse sexual worship with worship of Yahweh. Again, a separation between humans and animals, but also a separation between true worship and pagan worship. They were not to be mixed. Worldly pagan worship and true worship were not to be mixed. Uh, Which leads to a third... um, Let me go back. And and the reason why there's a good uh, possibility that this had to do with with pagan culture and pagan worship is because when we look back at the pagan gods, most of them were half human, half animals. And so there's probably some form of impure sexual worship that was happening here, that, that this is specifically telling the Israelites that they were not to be a part of at all. Which leads to the last verse in these sets. There's three verses that go together. They all have to do with capital punishment. Verses 18, verses 19, and verses 20. Look at verse 20. It says this. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh alone, shall be devoted to destruction. That's just another way of saying death. Three different capital offenses put together. Again, we see a separation or distinction that's being made here, a division between godly sacrifice and pagan false sacrifice. The people of God, Israel, were not to sacrifice pagan gods. Again, therefore, verses 18, 19, and 20 all have to do with false worship. In the Old Testament, to sacrifice to a pagan god, which Israel did often, it was a death penalty. That's a law that applied to Israel. We'll talk about that in a second. But I just want to say this, because for a lot of us, that may seem extreme, because we're Americans and we believe in freedom of worship. But let me just say this in the Old Testament. Where did that sacrificing of false gods lead Israel eventually? To the worship of Molech and sacrificing children to false gods. It was evil. And God wanted to separate his people from the evil practices of the pagan religions that surrounded them. Again, verses 18, 19, 20 all had to do with false worship. These verses really are the application of the first and second commandment. Perverse religious practices such as witchcraft, psychics, mediums, right? perverse sexual worship practice that is talked about in verse 19, and sacrifices to false gods were not to be a part of God's people at all. Before we move on, I just, a little side note, maybe a disclaimer here, and remind us again, this is the civil law, which is the application of the moral law the application of the moral law, the first and second commandments, to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So let me just make it clear, the church, I think most of us know this, but the church isn't called to put people to death. And I say that because in the history, the church has mixed this up. Riches or false worshipers, these laws applied to Israel, not the church. But it's important that we understand the principles behind these laws do transcend both covenants, right? Because the application of the moral law and the moral law transcends both covenants. Therefore, this passage really teaches us that false worship, sexual perversion, and witchcraft are not to be associated with God's people. At all. 
fact, the severity of the punishment to these three things in the Old Testament tells us how much these should be separated from us Christians in the New Testament. There should be a separation, again, there's that word, a distinction, a separation, a division between God's people and Godless worldly practices. Again, God is holy. Therefore, his people are to be holy. Which means there is to be a separation between God's people and the world and worldliness. Now, we're going to come back to this and spend some more time on this, but I want to move on to our next point, because God's not only holy, he is also love. Second point this morning, second part of our passage this morning is God is love. And, and because God is love, God's people are to love, are to be loving. They are to love and protect the most vulnerable within society. Israelites were to love and protect the most vulnerable within society. We already saw this in Exodus 21 with slaves and the unborn. Right? Both of them were to be protected. That's what the laws in Exodus 21 are all about. Today we see it with three more groups. Verses 21 through 27, three groups. We have the sojourner, widows and orphans, and the poor. They were to be protected in Israel. Let's start with the sojourner. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says this, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, a sojourner is just a foreigner. It's someone that is living part-time in Israel or someone traveling through Israel. They were, they were to be treated well by the Israelites. Again, verse 21 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for... You were sojourners or foreigners in the land of Egypt. This is reminding the Israelites where they have come from. And this is kind of a double-edged sword when you think about it, because Israel did both, or Egypt did both to Israel. Egypt right, treated Israel extremely well at the end of Genesis, right? In fact, saved them from a famine— Gave them a land inside of Egypt. The Israelites had a land inside of Egypt where they could prosper and grow. Protected them from foreign enemies. Treated them with kindness for the sake of Joseph. The end of Genesis. But then we get to the book of Exodus. And Egypt enslaves Israel and treats them horribly, harshly. Therefore, God was telling the, the Israelites to remember their time in Egypt to remember and, and to treat those that are traveling through their land well, the sojourner, the foreigner, to treat them well. But it wasn't just the sojourner who they were to treat well. Look at verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, an orphan. Right? Again, Israel was to take care of the vulnerable, and, and therefore they were to treat orphans and widows well. And, and this is especially uh, important in in the Israelites' time, because the wealth of a family was always associated with the patriarch. And therefore, if a patriarch dies, right, then the wealth was lost. For the women's ministry that's going through the book of Ruth, we see this very clearly, and we see that this law was obeyed by Boaz so clearly treating Ruth and then Naomi and this family extremely well. Right? Listen to verse 23, because there's a warning that comes with this. Uh, command this law. If you do mistreat them, that's the orphans and widows, and they cry out to me, 
I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. In other words, God will not turn a blind eye to the sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to any sin, but he specifically makes it clear he will not turn a blind eye to this sin. If you mistreat, right, a widow or you mistreat the fatherless, your wife will become a widow. Your children will become fatherless. There will be justice served, right, if you mistreat the widow or the orphan. Again, there's a warning that comes along with this law, which leads to this final group because there's a warning in this one too. God commands Israel to protect the poor. Look at verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with whom, or with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. In other words, within Israel, if you're going to lend money to the poor because they're in need, they need the money to, to get back on their feet, and you're going to lend it to them, you need to do it interest-free. Not taking money like a, a, a money lender, charging interest. Not taking advantage, in other words, of a person that's in need. On top of that, look at verse 26. If, if you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, or as a promise to pay the money back, you take his cloak, right? You shall return it to him before the sun goes down. If you get the money back or not, return it to him before the sun comes down. Now, I want to be clear, this isn't about clothes or a cloak. <laughs> There's a principle behind this illustration that the Israelites were supposed to get. If a poor person isn't able to pay you back, don't take away the little he has. That's the implication. Because look at verse 27. For that, right, the cloak is his only covering. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? In other words, the Israelites were were to be generous to the poor. Right, within their nation, they were to be generous to the poor, not taking advantage of them, not, not gaining more wealth on their poverty. This really is the application of the seventh commandment. Again, we're seeing the application of the moral law throughout this whole portion of Scripture. It's the application of the seventh commandment. You shall not steal. When we learned as we went through the Ten Commandments, not only are you not to do something, the negative, you, you are to do the opposite of it, right? Not stealing is the negative. The opposite would be, be generous. The Israelites were to be generous. God's people were to be generous with one another. And if they weren't, once again, the end of verse 27, we see a warning. It says this, and if he, that's the poor, cries to me, I will hear. It's a warning, and, it, and it, it points us back to the warning he gives about the orphans and widows. I will hear, and then God says, for I am compassionate. I am compassionate. God is loving. God is love. He is compassionate. Therefore, God's people are to be compassionate. Once again, God's law in the Old Testament reflects his character. You can learn a lot about God by going through the law one of the important reasons that we spend time in the law. You learn that God is compassionate. God is holy. We saw that in the first part, right? Therefore, God's people are to be holy. God is love. We see this in the second part. Therefore, God's people are to be loving and compassionate. Which brings us to the last point or part of this passage. Is God is to be honored. God is to be honored. So look at verse 28. It says this, 
You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Now, this is Hebrew parallelism. You don't see it as clearly in the English, but I, I think you can see it, right? Honor God in speech. You shall not revile God. Honor your rulers in speech, nor curse a ruler of your people. Right? There's parallelism that's going here, and, and that parallelism really implies that there, the verbal respect for God, due to God, and for rulers spring from the same source. And that is just a respect for authority. Obviously, this is the application of the third commandment, right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? That's the third commandment. Verse 28 says, you shall not revile God. It's the application of the third commandment, but really more than that, I think it's the application of the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother. Now, that may seem weird at first, but what does the fifth commandment teach us? It teaches us that we are to honor God by honoring those who God has put in authority over us. Foremost, our parents. No matter how good or bad of a parent they are, we are to honor them. But also, again, the, the Ten Commandments takes the most extreme sin, right? Do not commit adultery. That, that's an umbrella for all types of sins, the sexual sins underneath that. Jesus even says lust in the heart, right? The, the worst way of, of dishonoring authority is dishonoring your parents. Then the umbrella of that is everyone in authority underneath that. Therefore, we are also to not dishonor men and women in authority over us as bosses, pastors, governors, rulers. Verse 28 says, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. We are to honor those in authority over us, and by doing that, listen, we honor God. We honor God. Now, I want to be clear on this. This doesn't mean we don't speak truth. No, we always speak truth. We are people of the truth. We are called to speak truth in every situation. We're called to speak truth, but we're called to speak truth in love, with respect, with honor. Obviously, with the election season coming up here, this is an extremely hard command for us to obey. <laughs> but I want to be clear, just because you speak truth, you're called to speak truth honorably and respectfully. So you should ask yourself, when I talk about people that are in authority over me, am I doing it respectfully? When I post something online about an authority over me, am I doing it respectfully and honorably? And I want to just say this. I know one person who has avoided our church, and probably for a number of reasons, but the excuse they use is they saw someone, a member of our church, post something ugly about a governor, and therefore they want nothing to do with our church. We have to be careful in our speech. Because of that, I want to spend some time, right? Because of the climate of our culture right now, I want to spend some time here. So if you would turn to Acts 23, verse 1. We'll be back. In, in Exodus 22, but turn to Acts 23. 
verse 1, it says this, and, and, um, intently at, or, and looking intently at the council, this is Paul looking at the Sanhedrin. Let me just stop there, the Sanhedrin. Right? If there was ever an evil group of, of authority or rulers, in, in this period of time, it was the Sanhedrin. And these are the people that put Jesus to death. These are people that, that were representing Israel in an ugly way, representing God in an ugly way. These were evil people. And he was looking at the, the council, and Paul said, Brothers. Paul at this point knew how, how evil these people were. And they weren't brothers as Christian brothers. He knew that. But they were his fellow Jews. And so respectfully, he calls them brothers. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. It's really respectful way of addressing this group of people but look what happens verse 2 and the high priest ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth right ananias is obviously a ways away and tells the people next to paul to slap him in the mouth then paul said to him right the high priest god is going to strike you you whitewashed wall are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now listen, I want to be clear. The high priest was wrong here. In fact, there's a lot of truth in what Paul is saying here, right? He's acting evilly. But I want you to listen to what happens. Verse 4. Those who stood by said... And these are people witnessing what's going on. Would you revile God's high priest? See the connection the people watching, witnessing make? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. Let me just stop there because I've heard some people argue, like, how could he not know he was the high priest? Well, Paul was probably blind. He didn't see well. You see the evidence of this throughout the whole New Testament when the guy was standing far off. He didn't realize it was Ananias that said that. And then he quotes from the law, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Guess what Paul's quoting here? Exodus 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Exactly what Paul did, and he recognizes that he was in sin in doing so, and he repents. He repents from this sin. Let me just say this. The principle behind this is we need to be careful in how we talk about our rulers. And I don't want to say this, it's going to get harder and harder. (laughs) You think it's hard now? It's going to get harder and harder to speak truth in love with respect and honor. But there's people watching us. Are you going to act just like the culture and revile those that are in authority over us? Or are you going to speak truth in respect and honor? If you think it's bad now, remember Peter said, honor the emperor. Who was the emperor then? Nero. 
was burning Christians as candles in his garden. We haven't got that bad yet. Turn back to Exodus 22. This is a side note. It's none of my notes. My sermon last, two weeks ago, the last sermon I preached, we start reviling authority when we lose sight on the gospel. When you forget that the gospel is most important, that's when you start acting like a culture. But there's another way that we are to honor God, and that's in our giving. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. God's people, in other words, were to give their best to God. It's an act of worship. The first fruits, their best, they were to give to God. And not only that, verse 29 says, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Now this is referring back to to Exodus 13. It was the the ritual of the consecration of the, the firstborn. I did a sermon on it. You can go listen to it. It was a ritual that taught Israel that the firstborn son belonged to God, which the firstborn son was the future of the family, meaning the whole family belonged to God. It wasn't just their sons. Verse 30, you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. In other words, Israel is to give their first and best to God, right? Because it belonged to God. It was an offering that, that, that made the Israelites realize that everything they own belongs to God. Not that God needs their oxen and, and first fruit. It was an act of worship, a, recogniz- a recognition that, that everything we have belongs to God. We're stewards, not ours. Again, therefore, Israel was to honor God in speech to God and to rulers. Israel was to honor God in their offerings. They were to give their best, but finally they were to honor God in their conduct. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says this, You shall be consecrated to me. Now that word consecrated just means holy. In fact, some of your translations just say holy. You should be holy to me. Holy means set apart, separate. We've been talking about this. The Israelites are to be set apart. They are to be holy. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Now, in our culture, dogs are great, right? (laughs) We love dogs. In this culture, in ancient Israel, dogs were ugly animals. (laughs) They, they, they would eat dead animals. They were scavengers. Right? And there is to be a separation between Israel and dead beasts and dogs, right? Now, most read this, and I, and I think most of us read this and just assume that this has to do with health. But that misses the main point. In fact, in Deuteronomy 14.21, God gives permission for sojourners to eat this meat found dead. Let me just read it. It says this in Deuteronomy 14, 21. It says, You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. Therefore, if you, you come upon something that has died naturally, you are not to eat it. It's the same law as in Exodus, but then it says this, You shall give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner. In other words, the sojourner and foreigner is more than welcome to eat meat that was found dead naturally. And here's the reason. God gives the reason why. And it has, does, has nothing to do with health. He says this. For you are a people holy. Right? Set apart. Separate. Distinct. 
to the Lord your God. Verse 31 is not about health, it's about holiness. Israel is to be separate. Right? They are to separate themselves from the world. They are to be holy, which really brings us back to the beginning of our passage. Let me just say this. In Scripture, unholiness, uncleanness, and death are all related, and they are to be separate, put in their proper place. They are to be separate from holiness, cleanness, and life, which is all related. Therefore, God's people are to be holy and separate from uncleanness and death. Again, holiness can be defined as putting things in its proper place. Israel was to put in their proper place as God's people. They were to be put in their proper place. And this leads us to our application this morning. Again, I want to spend some time on this application because I think it's relevant. And I want to go deep on this. I've really been contemplating this all week. Although we can learn a lot from our passage and I've kind of touched on a few things already, right? God's compassion. We can learn about his, his nature and his compassion, his love for the sojourner, right? The widow, the orphan, the poor. Now we, as God's people, should have that same compassion and love right? reflecting God's nature. We also can learn of different ways of honoring God, honoring God in our speech, in our speech to God and to rulers, honoring God in our offerings, an act of worship, honoring God in our conduct, right? Again, these were specific laws to Israel, but the general principles behind them apply to us. But there's one application I just want to focus on this morning, and, and I think, again, it's relevant, and it's this. As God's people, we are to be holy by making distinctions. We are to divide. We are to separate we are to put things in their proper place. So if you would, turn to Genesis 1.1, and I want to focus on this concept for a second, because that's what's happening in the law here, putting things in their proper place. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. I hope this is an extremely familiar portion of scripture for all of us, and if it's not, just listen. Genesis 1-1, again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen to this, verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, the deep being water. In other words, uh, uh, the, the earth was without form, it was just a, a ball of water. Now, this wasn't good. It wasn't bad or evil. It just wasn't good because it was incomplete. The earth was without form and void, just darkness and water. So here's my question. How did God complete creation? How did he make it good? We'll look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there is light. And God saw that the light was good, and God said, and God, listen, Separated. Important word. God separated the light from the darkness. He separated, he divided, he made a distinction between light and darkness. And this keeps going. Look at verse 6. 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate. It's that word again. Separate the waters from the waters. So separation that's happening here, a distinction, a division. Again, verse 7 says this, And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that was above the expanse. God made the heavens somehow in separating, making atmosphere, the waters from the waters. And this idea keeps going. Look at verse 9. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. What is he doing? He's separating. He's making distinctions. He's putting things in their proper place. Land, he's separating from the waters, from the sea. And it was so, verse 10, And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that gathered together he called sea, and God saw that it was good. It was good that the land and the the waters were separated. Look at verse 14. And God said, verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate, there's that word again, to separate the day from the night. God separated day and night. What's God doing? You know what he's doing? He's putting things in their proper place. He's making distinctions. He's dividing. He's separating waters from waters, light from darkness, sea from land, sun and moon, night and day. And this was good. In fact, I'd say this is holy. Remember, holiness is putting things in their proper place. One theologian put it this way, and I think it's a good description. In Genesis 1, God is sanctifying creation by putting things in their proper place. And it keeps going. Look at verse 11. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetations, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which um, is their seeds, each according to its kind on the earth. God doing here? Making distinctions. He's separating kinds. Kinds from kinds. He does this with the animals too. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 it says this, and God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Again, God's separating kinds from kinds. He's making distinctions. He's dividing. He's putting things in their proper place. And it was good. Now look at verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now this is the pinnacle of God's creation, man, which is the only part of God's creation that's made in his image, meaning there is a separation between man and the rest of creation because it's the only thing in creation that's made in God's image. And, and God makes it clear that there is a separation in the second part of verse 26, and he says this, And let them, that's man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. Again, a separation between man and the rest of creation. This is good. This is holy. 
a separation between man and animal. This is why it was such a horrific act to violate the separation. Exodus 22, 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. It's a horrific act because it goes against the holy act of God in creation, separating and making distinctions between man and animal. But this keeps going. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's another distinction, another separation that God's making between man and woman, between male and female, between sexes, between genders. Equally made in the image of God, meaning there's unity, equal in worth, yet distinct in roles and authority. And you know what? This is good. In fact, this is holy. And guess what? Our culture hates this. Our culture hates the distinction between male and female, and that's because our culture hates God. The world hates God. Listen, as our culture has drifted away from God, it was always inevitable that it would also drift away from things put in their proper place. I mean, just think about it. Sex is no longer only for marriage. In fact, it's everywhere. Just think of the fireplace analogy. If you put fire everywhere in the house, it will burn down the house. Well, this is burning down our culture. Humans are treated worse than animals. The unborn being murdered while animals are treated like humans. Have you seen the billboard that say animals are children too? Genders no longer have distinct roles. In fact, it's worse than that. There is no longer distinction between male and female at all. We have lost the ability to make distinctions between right, wrong, light, darkness, good, bad, beauty, and ugly. I always hate this time of year because you get all the commercials for the movies that are coming out that are supposedly art. Healthy and unhealthy. We have lost the ability to make distinctions between truth and lies. Between correct doctrine and false doctrine. In fact, we've seen it in our culture, and it's just all over the place, this idea that all religions are the same, all roads lead to God. There's no distinctions between religions. They're all equal. They're not. (laughs) Before we get too judgmental, it's easy to, to look at culture. It's easy to look outside the church and make judgment calls. The world has crept into the church within the last 50 years. Many Christians believe and have taught and have promoted that doctrine is bad. Or at least it's not helpful. Doctrine is not important. Why? Why is doctrine bad? Because what? It divides. It's divisive. Well, guess what? 
That's exactly what doctrine is supposed to do. It's meant to divide. It divides from false belief and true belief. It, it divides from false teachers and true teachers. It divides from false religions and true religions. It divides it, 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 the people of God from the world. It separates us. It sets us apart. Another way of saying that, it, it sanctifies us. You know, this was Jesus' prayer for the church. In John 17, there's this amazing portion of Scripture where we actually hear Jesus praying to his Father. Right? Jesus is interceding for us, the church, right now, and he gives us kind of a clue what he's praying right now for us. Right? In, in chapter 17, he's praying to the Father for the church, and he says this in verse 17, Sanctify them. That means make them holy. Sanctify them. How? Sanctify them in the truth. And then he says this, your word is truth. I mean, this is where sound biblical doctrine comes from. It comes from the word. To say sound biblical doctrine is just saying the word. <laughs> we learn from the word and apply to our lives, apply to the church and what we teach. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart from the world. So here's our application this morning. It's really simple. It's just this. As God's people, we are to be holy by making distinctions. We are to divide. We are to separate. We are to put things in their proper place. And we are to do this by proclaiming and living the truth. By proclaiming and living God's word. By proclaiming and living biblically sound doctrine. You know what the law is doing? A lot of the law, all it does is separate Israel from the culture. You read these random laws, and you're like, why are this in here? It's to separate them from the culture. The reason why they weren't to eat pigs it had nothing to do with health. It was to separate them from the culture. We are to be in the world, not of the world. As the culture falls apart around us because they lose the ability to make distinctions, they need to see the church as holy, able to make distinctions because we listen to this. If we look just like the world, then why are we attractive? Let me end with 1 Peter 1, 14, which says this, and this is a command to the church, not Israel. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But, but as he who called you is holy, set apart, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Lord, our Holy Father, hallowed be your name, Lord, that, that it would be, be seen as holy, 
set apart, different than the world. God, you said that we are your ambassadors. You have given us the mission to reflect your holiness to this lost world, to proclaim your truth to this lost world. God, I, I repent, Lord, for any part of worldliness that has, has come into my life or has creeped into this church or any church, Lord. God, help us to, to be sanctified by making much of your word, by having strong convictions of, of what's clearly spoken in your word, Lord. God, I know you have told us over and over again as a church to be unified, but never at the expense of truth. In fact, we are to be unified with the truth of one mind. God, make that a passion of ours here at Country Oaks. In your holy son's name.